الجزيره بودكاست Russia says the US gave the go ahead for a drone attack on the Kremlin intended to kill President Vladimir Putin. Ukraine firmly denies launching any attack and Washington says Russia is lying. What are the possible implications of this incident? I'm Imran Khan and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Let's welcome our guests in Moscow, Dmitry Babich, a political analyst at Inosmi, a Russian state-owned company that monitors Western media. In Odessa, Ukraine, is Hannah Shalest, Security Studies Program Director at Ukrainian PRISM, a foreign policy and security think tank. And in Berlin, Ben Aris, Editor-in-Chief of BNE, Intelli News and former Moscow Bureau Chief for The Daily Telegraph. A warm welcome to all of you. I want to begin in Moscow first with Dmitry Babich. Dmitry, do you really believe that this was a US-backed Ukrainian strike? Well, this is what uh, Putin's spokesman Dmitry Peskov said. Uh, however, he didn't provide the evidence. Uh, but uh, in general, let's think logically. Uh, when uh, the Ukrainian authorities said they were not behind this and it was some kind of a Russian opposition group that did this attack, I'm sorry, I don't believe it. Because Russian opposition people, most of them are sensible politicians, uh, those of them who live abroad and those of them who live in Russia too. Anyone who attacks the Kremlin, anyone who tries to destroy uh, the architectural monuments, which every Russian, not only every Russian, but which the whole world knows, that that person would be dead politically uh, next day, maybe next hour. No one would vote for him or for her in Russia. So I don't believe this is the Russian opposition or Russian insurgent army who did it, as Mikhailo Podolak said in Ukraine. So it was obviously some kind of a Ukrainian group that did it uh, on orders from Zelensky or maybe independently from him, that I don't know. Uh, but if it was something done uh, in coordination with the Ukrainian special services, with the Ukrainian army, it is very, very likely that uh, there were also Americans involved because Americans don't make it a secret that they help Ukrainian army and Ukrainian drones uh, to, to do their reconnaissance flights uh, and to do other battle jobs, uh, you know, uh, to do other military, uh, to fulfill military uh, obligations uh, in, in the interest of Ukraine against Russia. The, the American authorities said it quite openly. Let's bring in Hannah Shalest here in Odessa. Hannah, uh, the Ukrainians do have drones. Uh, they have used drones in the past against Russian targets. Um, is there any way that this could be true, as the Russians say? Uh, Ukraine uh, definitely has uh, thousands types of the different drones, both the uh, reconnaissance kamikaze drones and the combat drones. We use all of them at the battlefield. It is not a state secret. Uh, the question is, uh, uh, do we have any benefits uh, from such decision? Mr. Podolak expressed just his personal opinion. That is not a widespread opinion in Ukraine about the opposition group in Russia. But uh, uh, from Ukrainian official point of view, that's definitely uh, not in our interest. We are targeting the oil depots or the military objects, something that will have a benefit uh, on the battlefield. Uh, targeting Kremlin in the middle of the night uh, doesn't have any sense, even the symbolic one. Uh, moreover, that is one of the most protected, or at least allegedly the most protected place in the Russian Federation. So when you have two drones coming with 10 minutes difference and with the wonderful video in such a quality that it seems to me 
all security services around the world became jealous about that quality. That's really raised suspicious about uh, who did it and how it was done. It seems to me that at least in Ukraine, what I read uh, during yesterday and today, most of the experts uh, are coming to the conclusion that it can be potentially in the interest of one of the Russian security services, not naming and blaming exact one or some groups within these services. The logic behind this in the arguments presented, uh, first, that only them uh, could know how to bypass the Russian air defense. Uh, the second, because no significant damage, or better say no damage was done, except of the nice firework at the video that we saw. The third, that we saw this video only 12 hours, and any news from the Russian Federation, only 12 hours after explosion. That's also extremely suspicious if you look for the previous. And that can be in their interest, because immediately the night attack that we had this night against my city, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the night uh, from the explosions and the Iranian drones, Many of uh, these Iranian drones had the inscription at their wings saying, for the Kremlin, for Moscow. So uh, you understand how it was uh, mm. used immediately. Uh, ben, I'm going to bring you in in just a second, but I want to get Dmitry's reaction to Hannah's comments there. What do you think? Uh, well, uh, I just wanted to say that... Um... Uh, yes, uh, the Ukrainian side is attacking oil deposits and military targets, uh, but why would Russians uh, make such a, a dangerous attack against the Kremlin? There was some damage done. You know, the, the uh, uh, building of the Senate, which is one of the most precious buildings of, of the Kremlin uh, ensemble, uh, this building was hit. They had to replace some part of the ceiling as a result of it. And as for the video, you know, Kremlin has been filmed uh, around the clock. The red square has been filmed around the clock. There are cameras everywhere. So there is absolutely, it's not surprising that they had this video. Uh, as for the publication of this video uh, 12 hours after the end of the night, uh, 12 hours after the, it happened, uh, I think it was uh, in the interest of, uh, uh, you know, uh, perception. Uh, the, the government was probably just afraid of panic. And uh, they were not sure how they would interpret this video, interpret this event, how they would comment on it. Let me remind you that uh, the Kremlin was bombarded last time in 1917 when the Bolsheviks were coming to power and used artillery uh, to, to destroy resistance in Moscow. Ben, I want to bring you in here. Uh, you covered, uh, you were the Moscow bureau chief for the Daily Telegraph. You know Moscow very, very well. Um, this attack, we're never going to get to whoever was responsible for it, certainly not in the short term. But on both sides, what does this mean? Well, it's a very confusing story, and uh, conspiracy theories are multiplying rapidly, like mushrooms in the rain. Um, However, I think there's a few things that you can be pretty confident about. I mean, the first is the Russian allegation it was an assassination attempt, which I find, well, why would you send the drones and time them to arrive at the Kremlin at 2 o'clock in the morning when obviously everybody's gone home and gone to bed? I mean, it's whatever it is, two to four-hour flight time from um, Ukraine border, and so you set them off at 11 o'clock in the morning or 12, not at 8 or 10 o'clock in the evening. So there's that. Um, the other thing is there's been some questions raised if uh, Ukraine's drones can reach that far, but they do. And actually, this is not the first time that Ukraine has flown drones into Russia. There was a wave of drone attacks at the end of February. So, um, sort of half a dozen hit various targets in western 
Russia and the European part of Russia along the Ukraine border. But one of those drones got nearly as far as Moscow. It came down just outside in the suburbs. And that was a Ukraine, uh, like my colleague was saying, a reconnaissance drone that had been packed with explosives. And so certainly they have the technical capability to do it. So the remaining question is, who did it? Was it the Ukraine side or was it the Russians in some sort of black op? Uh, and that's where the confusion starts, because they both have um, wins from this. The PR effect of, you know, striking the wolf in his bunker um, all the way in Moscow went down very well in Kiev. Everyone was sort of proud and happy. And I um, guess we're fighting back. We're taking the fight to Russia to the front door. And the other argument on the uh, the Russian side is that I've heard people saying it's a prelude to some sort of escalation. I think a lot more credible is that it's a sort of wake-up call to shake people up. Um, it's part of the recruiting drive and to make Russians think, oh, gosh, we're under attack. We have to do something about this and so that they would join the army. And that's quite a significant theory in so much as Moscow in the last 10 days, two weeks, has been plastered with recruitment uh, um posters, trying to encourage people. It's, it's a constant theme on the TV. And uh, Shoigu, the defense minister, has launched this campaign to try and recruit 400,000 people. And noticeably, it's a recruitment, um, signing people up to contracts, paying them, not a conscription, which is what we yeah. had last September. Because politically, forcing 400,000 people, men, into the army is yeah. dangerous for Putin, because that could cause a backlash. And right. so if you take you buy into that theory, then having this shock of an attack in the heart of Moscow to try and persuade people to join the, um, the army actually makes some sense. Uh, Dmitry, the attack came at, a, at a, a time where, you know, Russia is looking for excuses, according to the West, to be able to escalate the war in Ukraine. Whoever is responsible for it, it's incredibly convenient, isn't it, for Vladimir Putin? I don't know what I'm alluding to, because right now the world is preparing for the Ukrainian counteroffensive. All the talk is about Ukrainians going on attack now. So I would say that it comes at a very convenient time for Zelensky. Uh, there, was even, there were some comments in the German press, which I translated myself, saying that maybe Zelensky is not able to put up a really convincing counteroffensive. So he compensates uh, for it by making this... Uh, uh, attacks against oil depots and now against the Kremlin. That sounds like a more plausible theory for me. Uh, Hannah, whoever was responsible for this attack, Ukraine will have to deal with the circumstances of it. What is Zelensky and his inner cabinet, what do you think they're thinking right now? What do you think their response uh, to this? Are they just going to wait to see what Moscow does next? Uh, if we speak about the Ukrainian side, I would not uh, say that uh, destruction of the oil depots, that is the demonstration of the weakness of Ukraine. Uh, that is very much in line of the preparation for the counteroffense, because counteroffense is not only about uh, number of ammunition and forces, but also about the capabilities of supply and of the logistics of the both sides, because it is not a one-minute attack. And we understand perfectly that oil and petrol, that's what our military needs, uh, land, air, all type of them. And that's where the Russian Federation has the certain uh, advantages. That's why attacking the oil depots uh, or the uh, ammunition storages, it is just a very good line of preparation for any type of the uh, escalation of the military actions uh, on the ground. Are we capable or not, uh, as two previous uh, counter-offense in Kharkiv and Kherson demonstrated that Ukraine can, and Ukraine always bring it with a certain surprise. I cannot say that uh, most 
Moscow attack or how to name it, the Moscow accident, that's something of the demonstration because it doesn't demonstrate anything. However, there is yet one theory that is running around. Uh, one of the Ukrainian businessmen a few weeks ago announced a competition and the prize uh, for those who will land a drone at the Red Square on the 9th of May. And that is quite a significant amount uh, for that competition. And we know that more than 1,000 drones, private drones, being already registered, not only in Ukraine, to participate in uh, this action. So theoretically, we also can imagine that one of those who would like to try um, uh, their luck uh, in this competition, uh, that they tried something. Because as my colleague said, 2 a.m. Um, night, uh, uh, the Kremlin, it doesn't have any sense um, uh, from the Ukrainian side in terms of demonstrating escalation or provoking another side. That's more of the symbolic action rather than uh, anything from the strategic point of view beneficial. Dimitri, do you really think a private businessman in Ukraine may have given a prize and this is just all part of a competition? Does that hold any water with you? Yeah, uh, well, uh, I think there are many uh, groups in Ukraine which operate on their own. Let me remind you that uh, during the eight years and especially during the two years when Zelensky was in power, uh, Zelensky several times uh, said he was going to find a compromise with Russia, to make a truce or even to conclude a peace treaty. And every time there was a powerful political force that organized demonstrations, once they even ransacked his office. So uh, I, I suppose it, it, it was not a private businessman, just one person, but there are very powerful nationalist circles in Ukraine which can organize uh, uh, military actions on their own, uh, and uh, which can organize provocations. So I don't exclude uh, the possibility that Zelensky didn't know about this attack. Also, uh, let me uh, tell you that basically now Russia can retaliate uh, in the same way. And there are many radicals in Russia, unfortunately, who have been talking about the need to hit uh, Zelensky's headquarters on Bankovay Street in Kiev many times. Thank God the government and the military people in Russia, they are more sensible. They never did it. But there was a lot of talk about it in the media. And also, please uh, notice uh, a certain interesting thing. Zelensky, after visiting Finland, instead of going to Kiev, made a surprise visit to Holland. <laughs> he was taken by a Dutch plane from Finland to Holland. Uh, isn't that telling us something? Maybe he is afraid to come back to his office. Well, we'll get into that in a moment, but I want to bring Ben Aris in here, who's from Berlin. Ben, what both our guests are, are speaking to is the changing nature of warfare. You can now make... Private individuals can now hack. They can do cyber warfare. Drones are very, very popular amongst civilians, amongst people who just like to fly them for fun. There are ways of changing those DJI drones, those commercially available drones, into something a little bit more dangerous. Do you think, do you think that this is, could well be, actually, what, we, what it looks like is just a rogue attack? <clears throat> yeah, I want to pick up on, on Dimitri's point. Um, that um, one of the confusing things about this is, you know, it's been uh, showcased as a, a fight between the Ukraine and, and the Kremlin. However, there is the possibility. Uh, there are these fractions. There's extreme Ukrainian nationalists. Uh, one of the theories of how the Nord Stream um, pipelines 
gas pipelines got blown up was that it was an independent operation by a bunch of patriots who just went off and decided to do it on their own. And that's not, that's a credible theory. I've heard sources say the same thing. And within Russia too, um, there are partisans. I mean, uh, Dmitry is being dismissive of the opposition because the mainstream opposition that we know and see on our TVs is not the only opposition, but we've got a piece coming out. There are um, a group, uh, sort of anarchists almost, who are going around and blowing up government buildings, blowing up police stations, but it's very small scale. It's, it's, and it's very uh, fringe uh, opposition group. But it's possible that this group actually got themselves together and have packed a drone with some explosives and sent it into the Kremlin, um, as you're suggesting, and that would be a, a massive escalation. But I, I think that's unlikely, but it's still possible. And if you look at the drones themselves, I mean, I was saying about things we can be confident um, in, and I think we can be pretty confident that the Americans were not behind this, because their entire strategy has been to provide Ukraine largely with defensive weapons. And the logic behind that is we're helping Ukraine defend itself. Now, if the states gave um, drones, its own drones, highly sophisticated ones, which noticeably it hasn't done, those are offensive weapons. And then the argument becomes that for the Russians <clears throat> that you're not defending Ukraine anymore, you're actually using it as a proxy to attack us. That's an act of war. And then boom, we're into World War III. But that's not to say somebody else couldn't get their hands on this. And the Ukrainians themselves, one of the great innovations in this war, what's new, is the use of children's toys that they hung grenades underneath, flew over Russian positions, and dropped them onto tanks, cars, soldiers. And this has been deadly. This has been highly effective. And there's nothing to say you can't take one of the old reconnaissance drones, which are sort of knocking around in, in Ukraine, pack them with explosives. And that's actually precisely what we saw in the end of February. That was what the drone was. It was just an old reconnaissance uh, drone that had been weaponized by putting an explosive in it and then flying it at Russia and crashing it so that it blows up. Kamikaze drone, if you like. I mean, Hannah in Odessa, what we're talking about now is this role, the American role as well, um, that the Americans have backed Ukraine to the hilt. But if this was the Americans backing Ukraine with the type of drone that can get to Moscow, can get to Red Square, that, would, that Red Square, that would be an escalation. But is there any way, is there any credibility to the theory that this actually happened? Anything that you've heard today that may have changed your mind? No, absolutely no. And one, uh, like, I have two reasons for this. One is a strategic reason, uh, because in all supplies of the U.S. weapons to Ukraine, it's always uh, discussed publicly and not publicly that none of these weapons should be used against the Russian Federation. That is the reason why Ukraine was not receiving a certain type of the ammunition that we uh, requested, even for the HIMARS, uh, the longest range that we asked, because uh, the U.S. said it can reach the Russian territory, so we are not allowing you to use it. Uh, that is, uh, like, would be absolutely illogical in this way for the U.S. Uh, uh, to back such operation when they ask Ukraine constantly not to attack the Russian territory. The second is because currently the mood um, in the U.S. a lot about the uh, not escalating and uh, possible maybe negotiations, if it is possible after the counteroffense or something like this. You heard in all the statements. So why to escalate, why to provoke something in Moscow 
exactly in Moscow, because we understand all this PR picture about which Dmitry said in the very beginning, that would be absolutely not in line with all U.S. policy towards uh, uh, this war and towards the current moment of support uh, to Ukraine. Uh, that is why it seems to me that uh, uh, also the second reason, because I said there are two reasons, the second reason is quite an interesting. We heard the statement about the U.S. involvement, usually from the Russian side. And very interesting, the reason for this, it's either U.S. or NATO backupping each time when Russia is losing. This accident, we cannot name it, is win or lose, because it is just the accident. But uh, anyway, for the Russian authorities, it is very difficult to recognize that they can mm. lose anything, especially for the military or in terms of defense, to Ukrainians. So as soon as it is the uh, losses, they always blame that it is only because NATO involved or only because the U.S. involved. Because for the domestic consumption, that is definitely better to present. Hannah, you make it. Hannah, you make a very advice, excellent. Yeah. You make a very excellent point. I want to pick up before you move on, Dmitry. This is for domestic consumption. This is the uh, this is Putin, the Kremlin, uh, just showboating. There's a lot of hyperbole here when you blame the Americans for this, right? I can say I can say that uh, of course calling uh, the Russian uh, uh, you know uh, the mere idea of Russia using the United States as a scapegoat is very interesting but uh, I can't uh, I don't think you can support it with facts it's a fact that the United States and the West in general support uh, Ukraine militarily there are uh, hundreds of tanks you know there are more sophisticated deadly weapons that had been sent to Ukraine even before uh, the war started in February 2022. The United States helped oust the legally elected President Yanukovych in 2014. Then the violence, then the killing started. Actually, the war started then. So I think the West should be constantly reminded, this is uh, something that people in the West forget, that the war didn't start in 2022. It started, in fact, in 2013, when um, uh, basically a mob in the center of Kiev protested against the absolutely legal decision by the president to postpone the signing of association agreement with the EU. It was then that 38 policemen were killed. Can you imagine what would happen in the United States if Sorry, a crowd of uh, Dimitri, Dimitri, just one second. We so are this unfortunate. Is, this is the story. It's a very um, interesting scapegoat, the United States, yes. Uh, we, are, we are running out of time, and I do want to come to very quickly to Hannah, who's violently shaking her head in disagreement uh, with Dimitri. Very quickly, Hannah, because I do want to come to Ben as well. Uh, very quickly, what's wrong with what Dimitri's saying? Yes, the war started in 2014, but with the illegal annexation and the Russian aggression in Crimea that Russia was denying for many years, saying that it is some uh, civil war wherever, and what he called mod. So I'm part of this mod. I am perfectly one of those who've been standing at the Maidan in Kiev, in Odessa, protesting against the corrupted uh, government that being just uh, the puppets of the Russian Federation, and Russia intervened in the affairs. But there were no killings of the, uh, at that time of police people or something. So the war really started in 2014, uh, earlier, but only with the Crimean annexation and the illegal actions of the Russian Federation. Uh, ben, I want to bring you in here. Uh, what, a lot of what we're hearing right now is the fog of war, is counter-accusation, accusation, something the Americans, the Russians, the Chinese, everybody seems to be, every superpower seems to be very, very good at. We're never going to get to the truth of what actually happened, not for decades, surely. Indeed, no. And look, both sides are playing a very important... Hours. 
information game. Um, so the messaging is very important, doubly so uh, for Zelensky because he's entirely dependent <clears throat> on Western supplies. I mean, most of Ukraine's industry has been smashed. Um, and so he needs to keep it in the headlines. He needs to keep the support up. He's terrified of uh, Ukraine fatigue. And of course, sitting here in Berlin, I mean, we're feeling the effects. We're seeing it in the, in the power bills and what have you. And then Putin has the same problem. I mean, he's got to keep sort of apathetic population on, on board with this war because the material impact of the sanctions on Russia is getting more and more noticeable. They're not suffering yet, but, um, you know, incomes are going down. Uh, retail sales have collapsed, uh, car sales have collapsed, all these products have disappeared from the market. And so um, it's very hard It's very hard to work out what's actually going on because everybody is telling you they're lying. Um, and we've seen this, you know, with both sides, um, both the Kremlin and, um, and Kiev have been spinning it sort of on message. And that's going to continue. I think the, the, the truth of it, like who was actually behind this attack, will not come out for years. I want to thank all our guests, Dimitri Babish, Hannah Celeste and Ben Aris. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Alex Baird, Abla Klar and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Ranjit Korean and the programme was edited by Anil Anandan, Lynn Engwin and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. And thank you for listening. Tune in on Friday for our next edition. This week on The Take, a royal coronation. Will Charles III fulfill his desire to be seen as the people's king in the UK? Or will the attempt to shine a light on diversity fall flat? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.